You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. The need to preserve beta cell function early in the diagnosis of diabetes is critical. What do healthcare professionals need to know to help their patients with type 2 diabetes preserve beta cell function in order to help manage their diabetes? Joining us to discuss beta cell preservation is Professor of Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas, Dr. Ralph DeFranzo. Dr. DeFranzo, welcome to ReachMD once again. Good to be here with you, Steve. Ralph, let's talk about beta cell function loss in people with pre-diabetes. We talk about it a lot if you already have diabetes, but I think this might be a pretty important issue. We've now come to recognize uh, that people with what we describe pre-diabetes, or maybe better be called uh, impaired glucose tolerance, already have a major abnormality in their beta cell function. So the, according to the American Diabetes Association's definition uh, of impaired glucose tolerance, if your uh, 2-hour glucose during the OGTT is greater than 140, but it doesn't get to 200, uh, you have uh, this, quote, pre-diabetic state in the old days used to be called impaired glucose tolerance. But if your 2-hour glucose is between 180 and 199, so you're in the upper tertile of IGT, not only are you maximally insulin resistant, but at this point you've already lost 80% of your beta cell function. So if I were to tell you that someone is maximally insulin resistant and they have only 20% of their beta cell function left, and I asked you, well, what does that person have? Well, of course, you would tell me that that person had uh, diabetes. What's even more uh, concerning now that we know uh, that people in this upper tertile of IGT uh, not uncommonly have uh, background uh, diabetic retinopathy. And these individuals had hemoglobin A1Cs that are only about 6%. So not only are the pathophysiologic disturbances present in prediabetes, but we're also now uh, recognizing that some of these people actually already have diabetic retinopathy or diabetic neuropathy. Well, Ralph, let me ask you this. I mean, since the beginning of time, since which started at the end of the UK PDS study, they always said 50%. And I know that you've published 80%. And my question to you is, how did you figure that out? Yeah, in the old days, when UK PDS was done, they didn't really have very sophisticated measures of beta cell function. And they used an index called HOMA beta, which really is a very, very uh, poor uh, index. Nowadays, the uh, sort of gold standard is to do an oral glucose tolerance test and to measure insulin secretion directly uh, uh, with uh, deconvolution of the plasma C-peptide curve. And if we factor in how insulin resistant their people are, because we know that you will increase your beta cell function the more insulin resistant you are, using these more sophisticated techniques, we now recognize, and this has been now reproduced in many uh, different uh, clinical uh, centers, that people in the upper tertile of IGT have lost some 80% of their beta cell function. What does the primary care physician and the nurse practitioners and these people out in the trenches listening to us, what do they need to know about the critical first step of assessment and treatment for that matter? Well, I think that that for the uh, primary care docs who are uh, listening in, you need to recognize that when you see a newly diagnosed diabetic patient, they really have had their diabetes for a long time. 
They're severely insulin resistant. They have very little beta cell function uh, to save. So you need to consider uh, intervening with drugs that preserve beta cell function. And in my opinion, there are really uh, only two that really have been established to do this. One are the thiazolidine dions, and the second are the GLP-1 analogs. I would say that at the present time, it's unclear whether the DPP-4 inhibitors will preserve beta cell function. And the other thing that these uh, physicians need to keep in mind is that whatever drug you're going to use, you need to make sure that the drug is going to get your A1C to the level you want to be at. So if you're starting uh, with an A1C of 8.5 to 9, the likelihood of getting to goal with one drug uh, is really quite small. So uh, you're going to need combination therapy, and I would strongly recommend that people use an insulin sensitizer uh, in combination uh, with the GLP-1 analogs. Looking at durable glycemic control in some of these longer-term, maybe open-label studies, is that the best surrogate marker we have? Yeah, I think that you know, for the primary care physician or even for the endocrinologist, these uh, more sophisticated measures of beta cell function really are not uh, accessible to them. And we know that uh, what causes the progressive rise in A1C in our diabetic patients is loss of beta cell function. Mm -hmm. So if you can uh, normalize the A1C and you keep it down and it's plateaued, and as you said, it's durable, uh, then uh, by definition, you have intervened uh, with a drug uh, that has preserved uh, beta cell function. So I would say for for the docs who are listening in, the key thing is to get the A1C down and make sure that it stays down. And they also need to recognize, as I said, the drugs that are best at preserving beta cell function are the thiazolidine dions uh, and the GLP-1 analogs. And I would say the, the, you know, the story is not uh, complete on the DPP-4 inhibitors, uh, but I think if the DPP-4 inhibitors are to be effective in preserving beta cell function, they need to be used very early, maybe at the pre-diabetic stage and certainly uh, at the stage of uh, new-onset diagnosis of diabetes. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Ralph DeFranzo. We're discussing the very important topic of preserving beta cell function in type 2 diabetes. Well, Ralph, you know about the new diagnostic criteria using the A1C. Do you think the range of uh, 6.5 or higher to diagnose diabetes is too high? Yeah, personally, I think that we know that 10% of people with an A1C of 6 already have diabetic retinopathy and or diabetic neuropathy. So I would, of course, prefer uh, to use a level of 6.0. But I still think that lowering the value uh, from 7, which was the previous treatment goal, to 6.5 for diagnosis is uh, a step uh, forward. But I think uh, people need to individualize their assessment of each patient and also the treatment. So if you have someone who has a hemoglobin A1C, say 6.3 or 6.4, and you look in their eye grounds and you see diabetic retinopathy, well, those people have diabetes uh, even if their A1C level hasn't gotten to 6.5. And for them, that hemoglobin A1C of 6.3 or 6.4 is causing a lot of damage. So in that person, uh, I think you should probably strive to get the A1C less than 6. Now, of course, we're talking about newly diagnosed diabetic uh, patients. Yep. You know, if you have someone who has an A1C of 6 and they've had an MI and a stroke, we know from the ACCORD study uh, that you may run into problems with hypoglycemia uh, if you try uh, to uh, lower the glucose uh, too uh, aggressively. And there was an increased incidence uh, of sudden uh, death. So in people with established coronary disease, 
I think you might want to be a little less aggressive in uh, keeping the A1C at 7 is probably okay. But for newly diagnosed diabetics, you want to be less than 6.5. And so I think that the, the diagnostic criteria of 6.5 is a reasonable step forward. Uh, but I think you should also try to lower the A1C to less than 6 if you can, particularly if you see evidence of diabetic microvascular complications. I think it's really about time to think about using uh, the incretin-based therapies like GLP-1 agonists much earlier. And I'm a big believer that if you can address type 2 diabetes very early before beta cell failure, then type 2 diabetes doesn't necessarily have to be a progressive disease. What do you think? If you start early and you start with drugs that uh, reverse known pathogenic mechanisms, and you know the GLP-1 analogs are great for preserving beta cell function as long as you maintain yourself uh, on the drug. So I'm all for starting early. Uh, and liraglutide now is once a day, uh, and that's an advantage for our patients over the exenatide, which is twice a day. And then we hope in October when uh, the long-acting uh, uh, exenatide uh, is uh, reviewed by the FDA that it will be approved, uh, and this is a once-weekly preparation, and that will actually improve even more the compliance uh, of our patients. That combination, there's no hypoglycemia, and the weight gain that could occur with a pioglitazone is limited and you may still even see weight loss with a GLP-1 agonist. Ralph, are there any studies looking at a large group of patients with this initial triple therapy? Yeah, there, there is an ongoing study. We're funded by the American Diabetes Association now. Uh, we're going to recruit 250 people. Half are going to be treated with the standard uh, ADA algorithm, which is start with metformin, then if you don't control the A1C, add a sulfonylurea. If that doesn't work, add insulin. And we're going to compare that directly to combination therapy with the Actos plus Met tablet, so that's pioglitazone plus metformin, and uh, exenatide, uh, the current uh, version of exenatide, which is the twice daily. Now, 250 people uh, may not sound like a lot of people, but we're doing some very, very sophisticated measures of beta cell function, you know, with the hyperglycemic clamp. We're measuring insulin sensitivity with the state-of-the-art euglycemic insulin clamp. So we're making uh, uh, very uh, detailed uh, measurements of body fat uh, distribution, we're also looking at uh, uh, carotid intermedial thickness to see if uh, this therapy uh, has a benefit in terms of retarding uh, atherosclerotic uh, cardiovascular disease. We're looking at a number of inflammatory markers, which we know are major risk factors for atherosclerosis. So even though you might argue that 250 people is relatively small, the kinds of measurements that we're making are so sophisticated that this is actually a huge study. And we think that when the results come out, uh, that they'll, we hope, will provide very convincing evidence that the triple therapy approach uh, right from the beginning is superior, far superior, I believe, uh, to the ADA approach. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you think the potential for this class of agents is in terms of reducing cardiovascular disease. If you look at the GLP-1 analogs, of course, they promote weight loss and uh, obesity is a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. They also seem to specifically mobilize fat uh, out of the visceral depots and out of the liver, uh, and these fat depots are also uh, uh, major risk factors for cardiovascular disease. They have a blood glucose-lowering effect that goes above and beyond uh, what you'd expect uh, from weight loss alone. So this is a reduction in another major cardiovascular risk factor. We know that their beneficial effect on the plasma uh, lipid profile, so triglycerides drop, uh, LDL cholesterol tends to drop, HDL cholesterol rises. 
My guess is that these beneficial effects on lipids are more related to the weight loss than to the direct effect of the drug. And there's a lot of excitement now uh, that uh, this class of drugs improves endothelial dysfunction uh, and also may have uh, direct effects on the myocardium uh, to uh, improve uh, myocardial contractility and also to increase coronary blood flow. So there are lots of reasons to believe that the GLP-1 analogs uh, will give us protection against atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas, Dr. Ralph DeFranzo. Dr. DeFranzo, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Well, Steve, it was great to be here with you, and you know you can always count on me when you ever need me in the future. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients, that's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.